2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer, Connor Boyle. We rejoin our conversation today with the award-winning historian, Simon Shama. If you haven't caught the first part, hop back to the previous episode to get up to speed before enjoying this one. Shama joined us earlier this year to discuss his latest book, Foreign Bodies, Pandemics, Vaccines and the Health of Nations. He was in conversation with Kavita Puri, author of Partition Voices. And if you want to hear more from Intelligence Squared, do sign up to our newsletter on intelligencesquared.com and you'll hear all the news about upcoming events with the likes of Nick Cave, Gillian Tett, Mary Beard, and Rory Stewart before anyone else. Now let's rejoin Kavita Puri and Simon Shama in conversation. There is
0: a central character in this book, a fascinating character, mm. Valdemar Hafkeen,
3: Hafkeen, yes. Who
0: is a, a Jew from Odessa, um, and here he is. and. Just give us a little bit of his backstory and then we'll talk about his journey to Paris and then to India, where he did some monumental work.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, this is a photograph. I'm I'm showing you um, a photograph actually taken at the height of his fame. He's briefly famous. This is taken in 1899 in a chilly summer in Oxford. Um, by uh, another wonderful woman, who occurs very fleetingly in a book, called Angelina Ackland, who was a really pioneering photographer. She actually is the first person to develop a form of color photography anywhere, I think, actually, but certainly in Britain. And he does, after many, many a lengthy process, manage to produce a viable vaccine against cholera, which he tests always, as he does, on himself, First, a live vaccine, a live vaccine. And you get a double dose of, I think you still do actually, of a cholera vaccine. First, um, uh, first, a so-called attenuated dose to kind of kickstart your immune system because Havkin, unlike much of the medical and epidemiological world, he's in the Pasteur Institute, he's with Machikov, understood what there was such a thing as the immune system. And so the attenuated dose kick starts and then it prepares you for the second dose of the, of, the, of the live vaccine, which is much fiercer. And he rounds up some of his Russian-French friends, some at the Institute, some not, who then submit themselves to, um, to the cholera vaccine. And it works, it works. They have a fever, um, a mild fever. They have very, um, they have a little diarrhea, nothing very much, um, swelling, but it actually, it works as a, a as a viable vaccine. One of the people who then gets injected is a young Englishman called Ernest Hanbury Hankin, who is extremely interested in his own right. We don't have time to talk about him, but the crucial thing is, that Hankin knows the British ambassador who'd been Viceroy of India. The British ambassador in Paris is a man called Viscount Dufferin, complicated figure, some swayed from liberalism to conservatism. But what Dufferin, and particularly, again, another very important woman, his wife, Harriet Dufferin, who'd started a fund prodded by Queen Victoria to create Indian women doctors because... Both Muslims and Hindus in India are extremely reluctant to have male doctors examine them, put it mildly. Um, so the Dufferin connection um, makes Hafkin realise that to test the cholera vaccine with randomised comparative trials, trial of a population, half of whom have got, taken the vaccine and half of whom not, but who otherwise live in identical living conditions, otherwise... The comparative trials obviously won't work, too many independent variables. You've got to go to Asia, where cholera is endemic in some places, so that won't work, but epidemic in other places. And so he then makes the trip to India and his life, and really the whole world of microbiology kind of changes as as a result of that. And there's a wonderful photograph
0: and it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that yeah. it, a photograph like this in Imperial India was hugely unusual. Incredibly
3: rare.
0: Um, and he used a lot of Indians in his, yeah. In his work. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's only other one... European there.
3: Yes, um, that's a man called William Simpson behind I, him, who's, who's a very early champion of both Havkine and of cholera vaccination.
0: But he wasn't uh, hugely supported by the authorities in New no, York Britain. No, he
3: was led by Dufferin. He was led by Dufferin to believe. Dufferin provides, and he's, you know, the, 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 the prior viceroy. So there's a big fancy letter. Um, he goes to India in 1893 And there's a big fancy letter saying, this man will change everything in India. And he absolutely ignored or worst. The Indian Medical Service, the IMS, does not want to know about microbiology. It had not happened in Britain yet. There was a tremendous amount of nose holding. The choices um, of microbiological research were Robert Koch in Berlin um, or Louis Pasteur in Paris. And there is a sort of what was extraordinary and depressing, and goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, um, stroking my chin in a broody way about how nationalism had overcome a a sensible response to the COVID pandemic. What's going on is a kind of incredible uh, imperialist um, game of actually um, whether one empire or another empire deals better with this um, misfortune that your imperial copybook is blotted by outbreaks of, mm. um, of epidemics. In the 1890s, we're, in a very, we're not quite at the viceroyalty uh, Viceroyalty of Curzon, but we're nearly there. Um, the, the Indian nationalist movement is beginning in a very sort of almost demure, careful, gradualist, constitutionalist way in India. Um, and it there's a huge pushback against it by particularly conservative viceroys at the end of the and what they're saying is that um, this nationalism is just, Indian nationalism is just a lot of noise coming from overeducated lawyers and professors and writers. The, the Indian masses know, not interested in political rights, they're interested in a better material life. And whatever you want to say about the Raj, it looks after the material and physical needs of Indians. And it says this as, as people are dropping dead in millions from terrible famines and are not being looked after very well when an epidemic of cholera and then another huge wave of bubonic plague arrives in 1896. So Hafkin, their response to dealing with both cholera and bubonic plague Um, is to say we need to mount a kind of military campaign of disinfection. A chapter of the book is called Carbolic because it's kind of cult of carbolic acid really. And what you do is with the infected populations you find who is contagious and you send them to disinfection camps or plague or disinfection hospitals, sluice them with carbolic, keep them away. And this was an absolutely indiscriminate thing. And while cholera, of course, was subject to insanitary conditions because these quasi-military campaigns, let's go on, we can come back to um, that. Oh, well, there we are. um yeah. Um, there you can see, actually, a scene from an extraordinary album called the Plague Visitation album. And you can see a column of Sikh soldiers on the right. There are authorized uh, magistrates on the left. And their job is really to go around the houses. This is, um, this is in Mumbai and Bombay. And if if somebody was being hidden or discovered to have been infected with bubonic plague, you You, you, um, you lime washed and disinfected the house or you might you might just tear it down altogether You might sort of flatten it. This is called letting air in um, It's a fairly terminal way of letting air, air in um, and so to actually say, um, if you will be prepared to learn the elements, rudiments of microbiology, you'll know, in the case of bubonic plague in particular, that any amount of disinfection, because this is a bacillus which is carried by a flea, as Yasa had discovered in Hong Kong, and is on the bodies of rats. And the rats will simply leave in very large numbers and go somewhere else and carry the disease with them. And there is vaccination which Hafgeen develops and creates in india, and he 's just he 's given no money he 's given no lab space. Um, the only person who comes to his aid apart from William Simpson, you see there in the middle, um, and his eager and eager Indian assistants who are um, kind of minor Indian medical officials in Calcutta. Um, apart from those is Hankin, who is has is allowed to have um, a medical establishment in Agra. Um, and so Hafkin gets equipment and supplies and trains people, and then we're well now sorry, back in, with cholera in 1890, um, late 1893, 1894, and early, early 1895. He undertakes extraordinary kind of Odyssey, thousands of miles by train, by boat, by horse, by mule, vaccinating only volunteers, but also, very importantly, vaccinating um, comparative trials. So hospitals, prisons, barracks, where um, every other person is vaccinated. This is not without its suffering, because particularly during the play vaccine, um, if you were you know, number two in the row, and you were not going to be vaccinated, so a comparative trial would be tested. You're pretty upset, and there were moments where Hafkeen thinks, I have to go back and vaccinate everybody. That happens, particularly at a a particular prison. So it is just astonishing.
0: What I found really remarkable is the sheer numbers of people he yeah. vaccinates. I mean, yeah. that first year, he's vaccinating 22,000 people. And yeah. it's worth saying, you say they're volunteers, they were Indian troops, but they were people who were often disregarded by the authorities. Yeah,
3: this is a slum, actually. This slum is dwellers, a This It workers, looks like a village. The lower but
0: caste. That's it was, right. You know, people who were that's always right. neglected. Yeah, that's um, right. But I, we don't have much time, so I, we, oh. we, we're in 1893. Oh, my God, we don't. Um, <laughs> Help. And so do, he's, he's... Do I
3: talk too much? Yeah. Probably, yeah.
0: Um, so, so we're at this place... Most the most the, the, um, really. the, the British are not having much regard for him, but they realize all oh, these people are dying and actually yeah. they're looking at his data and they think yeah. there's something in it. Right. And they, they allow him to become di- director of this new institute.
3: Yeah, it's really, I, I remember that first photograph taken by, um, uh, by Angelina Ackland, Um, He is is enormously appreciated in Britain, and one of the people who's a biggest fan is Lord Lister, it's Joseph Lister. So on the strength of that, even though the Indian Medical Service is extremely uncomfortable with him, they do let him set up, oh, there he is, so there he is that's just an extraordinary photo i mean that is not in the kind of album of imperial there he is on a street vaccinating again someone who's come forward as a volunteer or i mean they've asked him you know they haven't i love uh, the way you
0: always dressed up for vaccination yeah
3: he is just yeah um yeah he is a he's both a hero and a sort of terrible dandy in a way so he is dressed up to the nines but one um this figure here you just see behind the figure in the pith helmet is an extraordinary woman who you'll have to read the book called alice courthorne um who is again absolutely a remarkable um woman doctor on the first generations. extraordinary how these very brave, determined, brilliantly clever women actually were determined to go into the heart of sickness and poverty. And Alice holds the records. Hafkeen tells us that no one came close. She works in a very badly infected town called Dabanga in Bihar. And she vaccinates a thousand people a day. And um, we have a, it's a little blurry, but it's a wonderful photo. There's Alice in her vaccination buggy, um, actually about to go on her rounds to the houses of this very, Um, And she, rather wonderfully, she's also um, an amazingly clever research scientist in her own right. And at one point where she saw dead animals, particularly, and birds, but particularly monkeys dropping from trees, she she was one of the first people to understand what we call zoonotic diseases, the relationship between the transmission of um, serious pathogens from animal populations to human populations. So here's... Here's, this was Government House in Bombay. Um, a place called Perel, still is called that. In fact, the Hafkein Institute is here. Um, now, not a, more of a kind of museum, still works on snake venom, which is very important, Anti-snake, antidotes to snake venom. This is in Perel, this is the incubation room of the so-called Plague Research Laboratory, which starts operating in August 1899, and with only 53 people. So as I say, a result of this British admiration, really, he's in a position to be able to hire fifty, just 50 odd people. He wants to actually have 700 or so. He never gets that. But with this very, very limited number of people producing the vaccine, the anti-plague vaccine, bottling it incubating it, he gets out some 10,000 doses a day, Mm. which then goes up to 90,000 doses a day. And the number of staff working at Perel goes up to, I estimated very roughly, just from looking at photographs of the entirety of the staff, 200, the overwhelming number of whom are Indians. In fact, there are four very important senior physician scientists at Perel. And and, uh, the the plague vaccine is not only incredibly successful, demonstrably statistically successful, in a very frightening epidemic, plague, we've all forgotten this, plague actually kills, in the end, nearly 20 million people before it finally dies out, this Fifth pandemic so-called dies out in the the 1920s when particularly when certain kinds of antibiotics are produced like streptomycin so um, it's also exported to Australia to China to Indonesia um, and, you know, so it's an astonishing, it's the first mass production facility in the world. just before we run
0: out of time, I want to end yeah. the story of, of Hafkeen because yeah. it's such a sad yeah. story and it all goes horribly, horribly it wrong does. for him yeah, in a Punjabi village and it he does. gets wrongfully blamed. And I'm forwarding here because it right. happens to him. It's like a medical version of the Dreyfus affair. It is. And he never recovers. I imagine he was... He was completely heartbroken by yes, what happened to him.
3: he very evidently is. Um, he, he, 17 people die, was it 19? I think it's 19 people die of tetanus poisoning from a single contaminated batch coming out of Perel, coming out of, in Malkawal, indeed, as Kavita says in the Punjab. And so I feel um, people are... It, it eventually turns out to be the case that what had happened In bref, as the French say, is that actually one of the preparers of the vaccine in the village, and they were always done because it was done in rural. You know, Hafkeen did not want this to be. You know, he wanted vaccination for everybody, for for very poor people. So it was done in open fields, and this was done in open field. And the preparer of the vaccine had actually dropped the forceps, which was used to remove the stopper which had an Indian rubber band neck around it. And uh, Hafkeen had had, had prepared a little blue book telling people absolutely, um, uh, you know, how to work in the field with a plague vaccine and what would happen if by any chance there'd be the remotest possibility of contamination. And what you had to do was pass the, um, the contaminated objects or the bottle head through flame, through a spirit flame, very high spirit flame. But this particular preparer did not do that. He just washed it in a solution of carbolic acid, which did not do the trick. None of this was known at the time of this catastrophe. And he was immediately suspended from his job. Um, He was then fired. This happened in 1902. He He was fired officially in 1900, end of 1903. He, he was made to leave. He came to London um, to sort of, because there were two things, I know I'm going on a bit, but there were that he knew without knowing, without getting the report of what had actually happened, he knew there was something very fishy about he could not possibly have been responsible because actually, Um, for, in other words, contaminating the batch at source, at its production source, because it got two or three weeks before it got to the Punjab at least. And if the growth of toxin had started in Bombay, a very strong odour, an unmistakable head-snapping odour would have escaped. And that had not been the case, that the... the um, the officer administering the vaccine said no there was no odor so it made kind of no sense to him but there were two commissions of inquiry both of which blamed him and his his career was completely broken he was in utter disgrace until um uh, a man called ronald ross i was i hesitated because i thought mm, this is gonna be a spoiler and you want to find out but i will you know an extraordinary man who was responsible for making the demonstrating the connection between Anopheles mosquitoes and malaria, called Ronald Ross, um, was approached by William Simpson, who you saw in that photo of Hafkeen um, inoculating the Indians in the Calcutta Busti. And Ross, who was a maverick himself and had fought against the medical establishment in India, knew something was really a, a terrible miscarriage of medical justice, hence being like Josephus. And Ross and Simpson together, the Hathkeem was so overwhelmed, very emotionally grateful, living in his little room in St. Ermin's Hotel. Um, they led an incredible campaign. It, uh, the, the Lancet, British Medical Journal, The Times, they gathered molecular molecular, biologists, microbiologists from America as well as from Britain and led a storming campaign and eventually the government was forced to release all the documents which showed exactly what actually had happened in the Punjab village. And uh, the government became very, then liberal government, very shifty, but eventually it was a public vindication of Hafkeen. But he was by then, he'd lost his, you know, he was given a job back in India um, in 1908, uh, but he was, he was kept away from vaccines. He was no longer trusted. Um, he wrote this heartbreaking letter saying, it's just like it was before you mounted the campaign. Nothing has changed. And um, his, his life as a great scientist was really over. This final photo, which I was so moved By, found again in the boxes of his papers in in Jerusalem, um, is is taken in 1908, and it's at a coal mine in Jaria, northeast of Calcutta, about 100, 200 kilometers north of Calcutta, northeast. And an outbreak of cholera, not plague, had broken out in June, I think it was, of 1908. and, And there were terrible accounts of people dying on the road and wild dogs eating human remains and bringing pieces of arm and leg into people's houses and no one being prepared to bury the dead. And Huffkeen was so upset and distressed. He volunteered and and he was met with a very frosty resistance again by the official British medical authorities. But he goes to his old students in Calcutta and Bombay and gathers enough vaccination material, he's very concerned that it will go off, it'll expire, and he was very nervous about this. And the owners of the mines, for selfish, you know, but rational reasons, wanted the miners who hadn't fled to be inoculated against cholera, and the miners themselves were absolutely desperate to be inoculated against cholera. Again, it was cutting huge sway through their their community. And we have this final photo of him as a vaccinator. And as you can see, it's a double, sort of double exposure. That's to say, the inspector of the mines, medical inspector, took the photo and was clearly not a hotshot photographer, hadn't figured out shutter speed and things like that. So it's caught him in two modes. I hope you can see it. It's beautifully reproduced in the book. On the one hand, he's, he's at work looking down very carefully, because he was very nervous and anxious about this, at the arm of the volunteer miner, he's inoculating. On the other hand, he's looking directly back at us with this sort of serious, upset, worried, slightly angry look. And I say in the, um, oh, we didn't do our little reading, did we? Um, I say at the end of the book, we'll never know which came first, actually, whether or not he is, he, he poses reluctantly for this official, you know, this mines photographer and then gets back to work, or whether he's working and doesn't want to be disturbed and the photographer takes a picture of him in media res working And then he reluctantly says fine Um, And it was sort of it's heartbreaking really in a way not just about him because there is the sense in in his dark years that there is only so much science can do Mm when you meet with these, as Ross shared this view, dug in numbskulls of official, bureaucratic, obscurantist, reactionary, do it by the book. You know, the computer says no. You know, that sort of thing. So it was moving for that reason. But
0: I have to say, I found quite moving a postscript, which is um, the Indian Covivax, the first vaccine that they had, was made at the Halfkeen Institute. Yeah. And so he That's is right. remembered. That's right. In India, uh, and he he played... is remembered.
3: India is the only place yeah. he's remembered. I was astonished that but he becomes very, having not been much interested in Judaism, he becomes very religious towards the, at, at this period. And um, he gives his papers. That's why I bought the National Library of Israel, Jerusalem. But um, but it's extraordinary that he's not really known in Israel at all, actually, or pretty much anywhere. I, I mean, um, wonderful people at the Wellcome Collection knew about him a bit, but yeah. But I, he
0: has, you know, important institutes named after him. And
3: well, no, um, only one, only you know, the one in India, in Bombay, in but Mumbai. I,
0: I don't know. I, th- I found it quite moving that India does remember him. and yeah, he, I it think does. he saved it
3: does.
0: thousands, maybe millions of lives there. Yeah. Um, I would love questions um, uh, from you, and I know we'll have some online questions as well from our audience who are watching around the world. Um, so please put your hand up.
4: Thanks. Um, initially, uh, thank you very much, uh, Sir Sharma, it's a privilege and an honour for this opportunity, so genuinely thank you very much. Um, my, my question concerns the nature of pathology, um, both in terms of the past and in modernity, and um, how traditionally each society has approached uh, both the identification and or appraisal of disease states. Um, across a population. So that that is, um, as you mentioned, um, epidemiologically. Mm -hmm. Um, The etiology, its origins, and the remedial practices to address these concerns. Um, With with great respect towards the medical establishment, there seems to be an emphasis placed upon uh, medical practitioners um, to treat disease retrospectively, um, a sort of post occurrence where there may be a risk of an almost sort of anthropic or sapiential sort of hubris of being separate from the natural world um favouring a reliance upon technology whilst ignoring the lessons gleaned from biology um, sorry now with a greater consideration towards homeopathy either working with or antithetically to the sort of dominant allopathic practices do you think there is um, too great an emphasis placed upon the study of disease as opposed to the cultivation of well-being uh, where one may be reactive and the other potentially more proactive and um, do you think there are lessons to shape the future accordingly and where, where is your where do you think, um, in your opinion, is that balance? Well, i uh, well, uh, so a small question. <laughs> sorry, apologies, <laughs> sorry, apologies. Yeah, that's are you, right. Are you, are, you, are you a medical student or are you a practising? Um, I'm, I'm an enthusiast. I'm actually an artist, but i um, <laughs> 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 sorry. I mean, I, I say, that that. I well, then
3: yeah, it would be, uh, you know, uh, as I said, um, my sense of uh, imposter syndrome would be massively magnified if I even, you know, began to give you an authoritative response to that. What I would say to you, and it's a genuinely very interesting question, is that what is very striking um, uh, in the 18th century dealing with smallpox, uh, particularly the second generation, um, is that the issues actually, um, because they, they, you know, there is a battle going on uh, crucially, which I think you'll probably know about, about whether Um, either play, but more particularly smallpox, is imminent inside the body. It's kind of waiting for something to trigger it. Or whether it was conceivable that it was generated from some sort of external organism. And the vast, the massive consensus laid down in particular by a very, very popular Um, medical writer called Thomas Sydenham in the late 17th century was that smallpox was, it was the former view, the wrong view, that smallpox came about as a result of the ill adjustment of the humours and was a way, it was actually a salutary process of taking you from one stage of the imbalance of humours to a better balance of them, so it was a kind of some one certain. I think called it a salutary refreshment. Except it killed one in six people. <laughs> they're, they're not that salutary, really. Um, but the, the, a lot of the literature about it, particularly as more knowledge is acquired about smallpox, without having a clue about germ theory yet, um, exactly turns. It, as, as we said, it's very. Interested in cultures um, which have practiced, I suppose, what we call homeopathy. For example, the most extraordinary thing I just just discovered, didn't, you know, must have been known to other people, but it's not been noted. The man who wrote the famous book on the black hole of Calcutta, John Zephaniah Holwell, who was a doctor and one of the few survivors, um, and then in Pinna writes a really impressive book actually about Indian religion and Indian folk culture knows that for centuries after centuries after centuries Um, folk inoculators had actually gone round Indian village, Brahmins. And he takes this very seriously. It's the first account we have of Ayurvedic medicine and medical practice akin to that. So there is a kind of golden age before the Martinets of institutionally dug-in British Empire in the 19th century, especially after the so-called Indian mutiny, who are extremely open to precisely the kind of things you're talking about. I'll give you one other example, then we must move on to another question. My other hero in the book is an extraordinary Italian doctor called Angelo Gatti, um, who inoculates against smallpox in France. And Gatti saw something which was terribly heretical, that the physicians, in other words, the high-ups in the medical profession, had been prescribing for money, very elaborate regimen of diet, of exercise, or lack of exercise, or bedtime before your inoculation and after your inoculation. The actual inoculation was left to the apothecaries and surgeons. And Gatti said, all of this is completely unnecessary. In fact, it's actually lining the pockets of physicians. And all that needs to happen is, he says very movingly, the best inoculators are mothers. You need the barest subcutaneous, you don't want to jab into the muscle, you know, absolutely right, you need barest subcutaneous prick. Um, in order to successfully engender the kind of smallpox that will not kill you or disfigure you and it can be done by a mother to their children at night So they won't even know they've been inoculated. We still don't have family vaccination and there's actually no reason why we, in my view, we get into trouble I'm just going to say really do.
4: quickly, sorry, the um, modern technology seems to be catching up to traditional wisdom with, <laughs> with, with, with the micro... In, in many the, respects, the, I think so. Yeah. The microbiome and the, the idea of the second brain. That yes, yes, that's right. Thank you very much.
0: Um, can we give it to this this young man in the front? Thanks.
5: Hello. Um, Hi. <laughs> thank you. Um, I wonder how much, uh, how much you had to research to... Get, compile this book, was it very hard? Mm. Because I haven't even heard of the. Of, I
0: forgot his name. <laughs> uh, the physicist. Hafking.
5: Yeah,
3: well, ha- yes. What's your name? John. John. Well, I tell you, John, that was one thing lockdown did. You know, um, <laughs> there was uh, not a whole lot of gadding about, which would be <laughs> my, normal, my normal style of life as Gavito and And so I read. I tell you, but you raised a very good point because one of the things which I didn't say was that the book I was working on about you know, national sports and music and so on, I felt I kind of knew that stuff, not as much as I ought to do, but I felt I knew that stuff already. And I, I'm sure a lot of you felt this. I wanted to use... The lockdown to learn something new. I wanted to go back to being a student, really. And again, it helped that my wife encouraged me and told me when I was being an idiot and didn't <laughs> understand. I started to, you know, subscribe to um, science and to the Lancet and things like that. And if there was something that was really, obviously, ridiculously hard for me to understand, I didn't go any further. Um, but it was very, very for an old person in Giza, you know, it was very exciting to feel I was actually, it was like mastering, trying to master a new language or something. So I thought, well, I might, this book might never happen or it won't, but wow, am I learning something I really need to know about. So that keeps you up at night in a really good way, actually. Do you, read, do you read at night under the sheets? I used to do that, Just get told off for that.
5: Yeah, I would, I would. You're, I don't think you're that old.
3: Oh. Yeah. <laughs> ah.
0: <laughs> Thank you, John.
3: Thank you. <laughs> can I adopt you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your dad, Um.
0: Oh Can we have this lady here over here? Thank you.
1: Thank you. Um. I was just wondering as a historian writing this book, what did you learn about how they dealt with people who denied all these diseases for so long? Yeah. And what lessons can we take forward with this?
3: Well, yeah, it's such a good question. It's so important now. Um, I'm pausing because it's so, um, you know, persuasion does work. I mean, you know, the, um, vaccination cowpox in it were, um, was successful, um, through, through Jenner, um, and, uh, human inoculation, the inoculation that Mary Wortley Montagu did, um, becomes widely accepted by the sort of 1750s. And as I say, it's a whole other subject, um, very clever, Family called the Suttons actually make it available to farmers and farm laborers, particularly in East Anglia. And uh, because it, you know, it, 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 they also make it, you know, they offer terms which aren't exorbitant for these absurd preparations and lotions and tonics and so on. So it was possible, but mostly, mostly you have to do it by. Going at it, um, you know, uh, by explanation, really. And, and the reason why I'm I'm pausing and stumbling and sighing and all the rest of it is, of course, you know, I live most of the time in America. And um, what's extremely dispiriting, there's a chapter at the end which deals with the demonization of Dr. Anthony Fauci, who presided over the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. And he is being, you know, I mean, it's a a Republican thing in Congress now to want to criminally prosecute him. It's extraordinary um, for... Um, What they say is, you know, completely wrongly um, providing money to the Institute of Virology in Wuhan and thereby causing a lab leak. One very right wing television commentator called Tucker Carlson said, oh, so the man who is supposed to have saved us from COVID turns out having created COVID in the first place. Shocking, terrifying, awful, defamatory thing to say. So, you, you know, it, it, it's part of a larger question, really. How do you disabuse and disenchant people, really, of something? Um, you just really have to keep at it. You have to fly the banner of knowledge as often and as clearly and as demonstratively as, as it takes. And I think also it helps in the case of, that, I mean, terrible things have happened. For example, the rate of child vaccination against measles and mumps um, has catastrophically fallen um, as a result of the so-called health freedom movement um, in both this country and America, which is an awful thing. So I, I suppose you just have to kind of raise your voice and try not to make people who are gripped by vaccination conspiracy theories not talk down to them, to actually take time to try and persuade them, m- not make them feel like wicked or idiotic people, really. And um, we're not altogether succeeding at that. It's worse in America, much worse than here. <laughs>
5: Um, that was, I mean, the, the history of medicine, social history is wonderful, and the history of medicine is so human. But um, one, of, one of my favorite places is the um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Right. Some of the stuff that, that, that they do in their, and the history. And something that I learned there a few years ago that in order to get vaccine out to the Raj when there were no refrigerators, they would take children off the streets little urchin children off the streets of London and you know, take them on the ship and one at a time inject them with the smallpox and the thing would get pussy and then they'd give it to another kid and then they'd give it to another and that's how they kept mm. the vaccine alive until they could get it to the wealthy people in the Raj in India.
3: Which vaccine are we talking about? Um, because was, actually, you know, it wasn't, a ma- it
5: wasn't a magazine. It was it was the London School of Hygiene and Tropical. Right, Medicine
3: right. No, no, no. Which vaccine? Sorry, oh, which vaccine? The, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah.
5: Smallpox. I'm sorry, I misunderstood you.
3: The, oh, smallpox. The, the smallpox. Okay.
5: And well, and that could I have been the case. Le- yeah. You know, that, and nobody that. knows what happened to those children. Yeah. Once they got to there is a lot and of and
3: folklore. I, I'm not saying it's wrong at all, um, but but I, I yeah that that could indeed have happened. This story is about. The opposite happening mm-hmm. is of the vaccines actually being created yeah. in mm-hmm. India itself. Yeah, it so it was just
5: a bit later. <laughs> um, <laughs> but
3: yeah, yeah. Was... So you're talking about the early 19th century or the yeah. late 18th century? Yeah. I suppose that could have happened. Yeah.
5: yeah, the things that that were that were going on. Your book sounds wonderful. I wish I'd bought it when I was out there. There's, you know.
0: Waiting for the I to
3: think the there are. Dessert. Are there not going to be copies? Yeah, no, there copies. are copies.
0: Lots so of copies. are <laughs> yeah, um, so not led off the we've, books. We've Sorry. only <laughs> got. We've got a couple of questions. There's a. Oh yeah, here. Yes, let's let's do this side. We haven't done anyone on this side. Just there. Thank you.
3: Uh, hi. So. I, I've heard of your work in history, with art history, and now with, with, <laughs> with, with politics. <laughs> that was the other Simon Shana, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what I'm interested in is, what was what was different for you as a researcher for investigating medical history that might right. be different than, say, I don't know, art history or politics? <laughs> what did? I know you obviously learned a lot about a new field, but the actual research of finding stuff out and uh, d- double-checking things mm. and yeah. Uh, what, do you have any, was there any difference for you, or? Well, first of all, I had to do uh, microbiology for Dummies, there's no doubt. You know, again, with you that wife book. checking, no. That, that, but I, I thought, for example, there's, um, when Hafkien first demonstrates the cholera vaccine in Paris in that summer in July 1892, um, fortunately, Hankin not only is watching it and is going to be vaccinated himself, but he writes a very, very detailed, Account of the scientific process, which produces a stable, vital, in other words, pretty so-called exalte as the Pasteur said, um, an intensify. So I needed to understand. I felt I absolutely needed to understand, as it were, the nuts and bolts of the experimental process. That's why you know, the answer to people who want to do this is marry a scientist, <laughs> you know, actually. And because every lunch, really, I'd say, I've got this right, Jenny, and you'd say, yes, no. And um, so I needed to really do that before I even made a move about thinking about the, the cultural and social history, which I was, or the relationship between Hafkin or Yassin or... Gatti and the people around them, but it was interesting. Actually, Ginny said to me, said, and I, I said something of the kind. You know, I'm having a wonderful time, but I, you know, I am essentially such a kind of novice at this. And so that was exciting. She we said, "Well, you know, when you were writing your book about Rembrandt, remember you collected, which I did, 17th century pigments. And um, actually, I did that. Like, you can cinnabar is actually very dangerous, and I made my own tin lead white. Actually, um, so quite dangerous you your small children around. But I absolutely wanted to describe the kind of innards of the Jewish bride in particular, the texture and the extraordinary sort of substrata that Rembrandt lays on. I wanted to see how um, old, old-fashioned pigments would behave on canvas and, and also how acid would work on an etching plate and so on. So I think really, I'm a terrible, you know, I'm not a really practical person. The the only really detailed, practical thing I do is cook. I'm obsessive, compulsive cook. But it is that sort of figuring out, you know, the chemistry of everything, really. Even if I, and I'm hoping, I mean, that's why I gave the manuscript to wonderful Philip Ball. He used to be contributing, major contributing editor in Nature as well, to say, have I made any... Ridiculous. I'm sure there are, you know, there, there are some gaffes and blunders in there. But that for me was, it was crucial before I kind of simply swanned in and said, now I'm going to tell you the story of the politics and the cultural response to it. Thank you. Um,
0: have I missed anyone else on this side? I forgot my glasses. I think there's a gentleman there at the back. Thank you.
3: Um, I'm really looking forward to um, seeing what fiction and drama tells the story of the pandemic we've all just lived through. I was Where wondering... are you? Sorry, i am not got... Wave. Oh, there yeah. you are. Yes. Hi. I was Hello. wondering, yeah. are there any novels or plays that have told the story
4: you're telling in this book well?
3: Um, there is. Um, uh, well, you know, of course, there's Camus's Plague. Um, and there is, of course, we forget that Daniel Defoe, uh, Journal of Year is a novel. In fact, he's in The Void, which is, I think, the first, first novel, isn't it? Before Gulliver and for, yeah, <laughs> panic there. Um, but it's, um, it's so, uh, Journal of Plagia, written by Defoe, was written at the time of this drive for statistics. And there was actually a man called John Grant, <laughs> spelled G-R-A-U-N-T, who did a lot of extraordinary statistical work based on the mortality bills during the great plagues of the 17th century. Um, So it was very interesting that Defoe, who was so many things in so many different ways, propagandist, fiction writer, you know, um, decided to do that. The one I I rather love, but it's really pretty terrifying book, is a French book, but it has been translated called Horseman on the Roof by Jean Gionneau, which is set in um, a a violent cholera epidemic. And there is also, oh, yeah... um, uh, I mean, there were, you know, Boccaccio's Decameron, which I read, the young lady uh, Solanotti. We, um, yeah, I read that during when COVID hit. I, it's an incredible thing to read. It begins with an absolutely terrifying description of, um, of the plague in Florence. Thucydides, in his history, the plague in Athens, we don't quite know what kind of plague it was, where society just comes apart Massively, and in um, oh, the Italian *I Promessi Sposi*, Manzoni's book, which all Italian schoolchildren are forced to read and hate it, but it's actually a great novel um, about the nun of Monza and star-crossed lovers. That again, towards the end of the book, of oh, what's it translated as *The Betrothed*, I suppose *I Promessi Sposi*. That has an extraordinary description of the plague hitting Milan in the 16th century. So that's your reading list. (laughs) It's the most depressing reading list. (laughs) Um,
0: On that note, uh, (laughs) I'd like to thank Simon. I'm sorry you didn't get to write your nationalism of sport and music.
3: You know, would you rather have written that one? No,
0: this is a brilliant book, and he will be signing copies outside. Um, So can we all thank him very much?
2: Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Tom Hall. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, just head over to IntelligenceSquared.com.
1: What are you doing right now?